Good morning, everyone. And good morning to those joining us on the live stream. Good to have you with us as well. Uh, well, yeah, we're starting 1 Corinthians. This is good. Uh, as we heard from Alison, and as we probably all know, 1 Corinthians is a letter. It's a New Testament letter. And something that became clearer to me this week was that New Testament letters are very unique in the New Testament. Uh, they're not kind of like the Gospels, that are like the orderly account of Jesus' life, that are like a story, a narrative. Uh, not even like Acts, which is also like a narrative spread of the Gospel. Right? They're, they're more narrowly focused than that, aren't they? They're, they're written by one person uh, to a group of people or an individual, uh, and those people are in a particular place at a particular time uh, with particular issues and problems that are being addressed. And so this letter, it's just good to state the obvious, is Paul writing to the church in Corinth. All right, so who, who is Paul? Paul was that missionary, wasn't he? That great missionary traveling the world, telling people the gospel, uh, and eventually he arrived at Corinth, as we read about in Acts 18. And when Paul came to Corinth, we know he was probably feeling a little bit down. Uh, he tells us that a little bit later on in this letter. He says that when he came to Corinth, he came in weakness with great fear and trembling. And that was probably because just before he got to Corinth, he had been in uh, Philippi, uh, and in Philippi he had been beaten and he had been thrown in prison. Uh, and then he went to Thess Thessalonica and Berea, and when he was there, he had been chased out of town by these angry mobs who didn't like what he was saying. And so then he comes to Corinth next, and the same things start happening there. And so he's probably thinking, it's time to move on. I've got to keep going. Uh, but then something stops him. Jesus comes to him in a vision and speaks with him. Did you see that amazing verse in Acts 18? verse 9 and 10. Jesus says to him, do not be afraid, keep on speaking and do not be silent for I am with you and no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. Right, easy to overlook how amazing those words of Jesus are. I have many people in this city. Right, it's, it's not surprising that Jesus has people uh, in the city who are predestined for eternal life, that Jesus died for, that when they hear the gospel are going to believe. Right, that's not the surprising thing. I think the surprising thing is that he has many people in this city, in Corinth. Right, Corinth was one of those major cities in the ancient world. Uh, it sat on this, if you can see there, like a little narrow land bridge. Um, and so it meant it was really at a crossroads uh, for travel. So east and west, uh, it would have the sea trade coming in, sort of crossing over on land and then keep going through the sea. Uh, but it also, you can see there, the, the north-south uh, travel routes all came together through Corinth in this little bridge. And so it was really this, this centre of travel. Uh, it was also home to uh, the Isthmian Games, hard word to say, but that was a bit like the Olympic Games, uh, but it was a bit different. It had kind of this Greek national festival vibe uh, of sports and of music and of poetry. And so it was also this great centre of culture as well. But like all ancient cities at this time, Corinth was also full of idolatry and sexual immorality and greed. Now, only Corinth seemed to excel in these areas more than any other city. Uh, there was this infamous verb coined 
uh, to Corinthianize, you might have heard it. It basically means to go to the devil. That is the reputation of Corinth, a city full of revelry and opulence and sinful indulgences of every kind. Right, Corinth, it's not the kind of place you'd kind of think, oh, I'm going to go there and, and settle down with the wife and kids and, you know, just have a nice little life. No, you'd go there to make it. You'd go there to make money. You'd go there to make a name for yourself. You'd go there to make a life just full of, of whatever you want to do and whenever you want to do it. And so that's why it's surprising to hear Jesus say, I have many people uh, who are my people in this city. And so he, he did. Paul stayed there 18 months teaching, preaching the word of God and growing the church, finding those people, planning this church and growing it. Uh, but now as we come to this letter, 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul has been gone for maybe two to three years. Uh, and in that time, there's been some letters written kind of back and forth between them. Paul has heard some reports about what's going on in the church on his travels. And it's a little bit alarming and concerning. The church has a few problems, to say the least. Right, and so Paul then writes to them in this letter, 1 Corinthians. Now, what makes this letter so valuable to us today is that when Paul is addressing their problems, he doesn't simply say, you know, here's what you need to do and, and go do this. He, he, tells, them, he tells them why. He, he shows his working. He says, this is what you need to do, but this is why. It's because of this gospel truth that we know. Right? And so he, he applies the gospel to their problems again and again through this letter, getting them to look through uh, that gospel lens, Right, to see the implications for their life. And that's why it's so valuable for us today, because as we see Paul doing it for them, then uh, we know he's also doing it for us now and the things that we face in this time. So today we're going to look at the start of the letter. And Paul, he follows this common formula when he's writing letters. He uh, introduces himself with a greeting. Uh, then there is uh, the thanksgiving and then he kind of raises the problem that he's heard about, the, the main issue. And you could kind of think, oh, those first parts, they're just conventional letter-writing introductions. They're not that important. You know, Paul's just waiting to get to the real business of the letter. But what I want us to see is that, you know, he's actually addressing the problem from the very start. He is very intentional about how he greets them and what he gives thanks for before he gets to the problem. Because those things are actually putting the problem into perspective. Right? As, he, as he greets them, what he's doing is he, is he is reminding them of their gospel identity. And as he gives thanks, he's reminding them of their gospel hope. And then in the appeal, when he addresses the issue, that is the gospel applied to the divisions. And so we're going to see that as, as we're going through. So firstly, Paul reminds them, uh, of their gospel identity in his greeting, verse 1, oh sorry, verse 2. So have you got your Bibles? Have them open, please. We'll be stuck in Corinthians. So verse 2. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. So this is their identity. Can you see it? They are the church, which is, of course, not the building. It is the people 
the gathered people of God. And it's not their church, it's God's church. You see that? They belong to him. They're God's people. And then we can see there, um, God's church is made up of those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. Now you hear that word sanctification and you might be thinking of the, the progressive kind of sanctification where we are growing more and more to become like Christ. He's not really talking about that here. Uh, he's talking about the positional kind of sanctification. Right? It's that once and for all uh, definitive act of God uh, that sets you apart for his purposes. So you are his holy people through the work of Christ on the cross. Right, that positional kind of sanctification. So you are sanctified in Christ, never to be moved from that position. Right, you're God's holy people. But then he says the next bit, which is, those then who are God's holy people are also called to be his holy people. Now, can you see that? Another way of saying that, which you might have heard, is, is that we are called to be who we are in Christ. To be who we are in Christ. You are holy, now be holy. You've been set apart for God's purposes, now spend your life serving the purposes of God. Right? Be who you are in Christ. Right? This, is, this is their identity as God's holy people. And this identity, we've got to see, is not unique to the church in Corinth. Right? This is true, as it says at the end there, for everyone, all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? It's true for every church. So you could replace the name Corinth with Emu Plains, for example. Uh, here is the book of Emu, chapter 1, verse 2. <laughs> to the church of God in Emu Plains to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Right? We are the church of God. Right? We belong to him. We are those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Right? We are God's holy people. Right? And we are called to be God's holy people, to be who we are in Christ, right? All, all believers share this gospel identity. And that's the first thing Paul wants to remind them of as he starts this letter. Uh, then he turns to the thanksgiving. So verses four to nine. And Paul's thanksgiving is reminding them of their gospel hope. Right? And we can see here it's hope that comes from the gracious work of God in their lives. That's what Paul's giving thanks for. Give thanks to God for his gracious work in their lives. And it's a work that is, is past, present, and future. So he gives thanks for all those things. So firstly, verses 5 and 6, uh, he gives thanks for God's grace in the past, where he says, For in him you have been enriched in every way, with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge, God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Right, so Paul comes to Corinth and he's preaching the testimony of Christ or he's preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when they believed, right, that belief, that faith was confirmed by their transformation. Uh, the things Paul, in, Paul saw in them, right, that they were enriched by the spirit with gifts of knowledge and of speech. And what he would have seen is he would have seen that they had a knowledge of Christ and the gospel 
And they were displaying that in the way that they were speaking to one another, how they would speak truth and they would speak love and those kinds of things. So faith was confirmed by the Spirit of God at work in them, the fruits of the Spirit. And Paul gives thanks for that. And then he also gives thanks for God's grace, which is at work in the present. So verse 7. Therefore you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. So in the time between conversion and the return of Christ, right, God is supplying his church with everything that they need. Right, everything they need to be a healthy, functioning body uh, with each part doing its work. Right, God is doing this so they will be ready for the coming of Christ. And not just ready, but they'll be eagerly waiting and expectant for that coming, growing as his holy people. Right, God's grace is at work today in the church. And then Paul gives thanks for God's grace in the future in verse 8, where he says, He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, so gospel hope is a certain future hope, isn't it? That on the last day when we appear before God, it will not be for condemnation, but we can be certain it will be for salvation. It will be God's acceptance and welcome into his eternal joy. And why, does, why can we be so confident of this? Why can Christians be so confident of this hope and this work of God? Well, it's, it's because of what Paul says in verse 9. Right? The reason we have such confident hope is because God is faithful. God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Right? So this is where all their Christian confidence comes from, a faithful God. Right, the God who began this work in them is going to see it through to completion every step of the way until it's finished in the end. Right, God, their, their confidence, their hope is in the grace of God and the faithfulness of God. And Paul's thanksgiving is really, he's reminding them of that gospel hope that they have. And I want to say, Paul starts with these reminders before he gets to the problem, right, to put it into perspective, right, because as Paul turns to now to the problems of the church, which is pretty much the rest of the letter almost, um, he, he doesn't want them to forget these things, their identity in Christ and the hope they have, grounded in his grace and his faithfulness. Because what happens is when you are confronted with your sin, it's really uncomfortable, Right, it's really uncomfortable where, and we're tempted not to deal with it but to, to deny it, you know, to, to ignore it, to, to run away from it, to, uh, to justify it even and think we've done nothing wrong. Right, our sinful flesh, the desires of, of our sinful nature will do anything but face the reality of sin. Right, so they must remember as they come to face these problems Right, despite their failure to live as God's holy people, that God will not abandon his holy people. Right, when they are faithless, God will remain faithful to them in the midst of their problems. And so we must remember that too. As we are confronted with sin, as we struggle with it, as we face issues and problems, right, rather than running away from them or denying them or ignoring them, uh, we can face it. 
in the knowledge that we have through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? through the identity, the rock-solid identity we have in Christ as God's holy people. Right? And with the sure hope that we have of God's grace in our life and his faithfulness to the very end, that's how we face our issues and our problems, right? with this gospel truth. Right, so it's with that, with that truth in place, Paul then turns to one of the issues uh, and he begins his appeal. So verses 10 to 17. Now what, what's happened is Paul has, has heard the church has become divided over certain leaders. So we can see that in verse 12. Uh, one of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos, who was a teacher that had come um, building upon Paul's work. Another says, I follow Cephas, or Peter, the Apostle Peter. And, and still another, I follow Christ. Um, so th- th- there's division in the church. Um, but we've got to see this problem. Uh, this problem is, is the church beginning to behave just like the world around them. Right? The church is behaving like the world around them. Uh, Corinth was like uh, the TED Talk capital of the first century. You know these TED Talks? Uh, people give these speeches. Well, what would happen in Corinth is that, that speakers would come, come to this place, this sort of popular place of culture, and, and they would you know, wax eloquent with like wit and whimsy, and they would impress all the crowds. Right? And the best speakers got large followings of people, fans. Right? And then those fans would kind of argue with the fans of other speakers, and they kind of have this, this rivalry and it was kind of like you know sporting teams with their fans kind of uh, boasting against one another, and, and this was the attitude of of Corinth and the world, and it was completely normal, as what we'd expect. But when you see that attitude in the church, uh, that's a problem. Uh, that is a deviation from the gospel. Right. So Paul's solution, as we'll see again and again through this letter, is an application of the gospel to their problems. And he does that here through three really sharp questions in verse 13. So he says to them, he says, Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptised in the name of Paul? So let's go through each of those quick. Is Christ divided? No. The the gospel message is that Christ is is risen, uh, he is alive in heaven, and anyone who believes in him is united with him and all believers as part of his body. So Christ is united. Right, so, so if Christ is, is united in heaven and, and on earth, right, his, his body should be united, not divided. Right, was Paul crucified for you? No. Right, if, you know, think about this. If Paul was crucified for your sins and, and raised again for your salvation then yes, follow Paul by all means. He can be your Lord and Saviour. But it wasn't Paul, it was Christ. The gospel is Jesus Christ and him crucified for our salvation. But the way they're living looks like Paul is their saviour, not Jesus. And then finally, were you baptised in the name of Paul? No. When, When people came to... When people heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and believed it, they were baptised in the name of Jesus Christ. That was that public expression of their faith in him. 
It was that symbolic expression of how they had died with him and they were being raised to new life, having all their sins washed away forever. Right, so it's, it's these three questions that just really highlight how much they have deviated from the gospel. By the way that they are living, it looks like they think the answer to these questions is yes. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is, is one Lord and one faith and one baptism. And so Paul's appeal to them is to you know, be who you are in Christ. Right, it's an application of the gospel to this situation. So we see that in verse 10. It can make a bit more sense now. Verse 10, Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. Right, now this doesn't mean they sort of start to agree on absolutely everything, Right? There's going to be disagreements in the church. But what it does mean is that when you have disagreements in the church, that those disagreements don't lead to divisions in the church. Right? Paul's, Paul's appeal to them is that they have minds and hearts so shaped by gospel truth that when there is a disagreement between them, it doesn't lead to quarrelling and jealousy and fighting and divisions. It, there's actually an eagerness to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. And so instead there is love and there is humility and there is patience and there is bearing with one another and speaking the truth in love. Right, you think about how different that attitude in the church would look to the world around them in Corinth, a world that placed so much value on social status and success and wealth and wisdom and power and all these kinds of things. Right? The church is meant to be different to the world around them. But at this point, the big problem is that the church in Corinth is looking just like Corinth. It's just blending in with the scenery. Right? That's, that's a massive problem. And, and, and this is really the root problem that Paul is addressing throughout Corinthians. It's a problem of worldliness. Right? The divisions that he's talking about here, they're just a symptom of the deeper problem of worldliness. Right? That's the disease. Paul, Paul really articulates this later in the letter, in chapter 3, uh, when he, he, you can see he hasn't left the issue. But in chapter 3 he says, Brothers and sisters, I cannot address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly. Mere infants in Christ. For since there is jealousy and quarrelling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? And what he means is worldliness is, is this kind of collective humanity and the way they behave and think. Uh, it's collective humanity without the spirit of Christ at work in them. It's the place that we all start right before we are renewed by believing the gospel and born again by the Holy Spirit. Right, and then a person for whom that has happened to, they start to grow more and more like Jesus Christ and less and less like the world around them. Right, so here's where this, this letter written to them is also a letter that is written to us and for, for our growth in Christ. 
Because worldliness is always a problem in the church, isn't it? Right? The world is always exerting a force uh, upon the church, upon God's people, to conform. Right? To conform to its thinking and its behaviours and its values. And just to look like everyone else around us. Or you just think about just think about the things that have happened this week. You just think about the, the influences and the impacts the world has had upon you this week. Very subtle. You might not have even noticed it. But think about what you heard on, on the news, for example. What you read in the paper. Right? The things that you looked at on your scroll, on Facebook or Instagram or, or whatever you're on. Right? The things you watched on the TV, movies and, and, and binging of series and whatever it is. Now, think about the effect all those things have upon you. You might not even realise. But you just think, are those things turning you to Christ, reminding you of your identity in him? Or are they turning you in on yourself and comparing you to other people? Is it reminding you of God's work in your life and the church and the world and lifting your eyes to the wonderful hope of glory? Or is it turning your attention to this world and the temporary and the material? Right, are those things promoting holiness and the way of obedience to God? Or are they making light of sin and trampling the word of God? Right, the, the world is always seeking to conform God's people to its ways, which is why we need the gospel. It's why we need the transforming power of the gospel always before our eyes, always washing over us, reminding us of truth, right? We need the message of Christ crucified. Foolishness to the world, but to those who are being saved is the power of God for salvation. Right? God has called us to be his holy people in the world, right? to be lights in a dark place, uh, we might not always live as God's holy people, but thanks be to God, the solution to that is always the same. It's, it's an application of the gospel again to us. Right? We need to be reminded of the gospel. We need to remind ourselves as we, as we read the word of God and as we pray. Uh, we also need to remind one another as we gather together like this, as we speak the truth in love to one another, Right, we need that. Right, we need to keep applying God's transforming truth to our minds and hearts. Right, so we might be those people that God has called us to be. Right, Corinthians is going to be a great letter for that. Uh, I'm so looking forward to doing it together. But let's pray now and give thanks to God and pray that he would do that great work in us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for the reminder this morning through the Apostle Paul in this letter of our wonderful identity that we have in Christ as your holy people. And Father, we do pray that you would uh, cause us to live as your holy people, that we would be uh, not conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of our minds uh, through your precious gospel truth. And Father, we thank you uh, that when we are faithless, that you are faithful that you that began this work in us will see it through to completion. We thank you for the wonderful, confident hope we have uh, in your grace. And we do pray, Father, that, um, yeah, that you would 
uh, make us aware of the conforming power of the world uh, and the, the drift into worldliness uh, that is always uh, pressing upon us. Uh, Lord, keep us coming back to the gospel. Uh, keep us reminding ourselves of that and reminding one another of these wonderful things that we might be your holy people and live to your praise and glory. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.